We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 8, and we shall read from verse 5 just now. Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound and uh, so on. Uh, We read these verses simply to remind ourselves of where we are in the course of considering this revelation of Jesus Christ. When the apostle writes here, it is, as we pointed out, a continuation of the ministry of the one who was the Word made flesh. John's Gospel, of course, is different to the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, whom we refer to as the Synoptic Gospels. John is a doctrinal gospel focusing upon the deity, the eternity, and the deity of the Son of God. And uh, here, just as Luke, when he writes Luke's gospel, then he continues to record the ministry of Jesus Christ throughout the Acts of the Apostles. He's recording the ministry of the risen Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit operating in the church and particularly through the Apostles. John here is continuing to give to you and I a record of the glorious, exalted Christ and his continuing ministry, unseen by men, but nevertheless giving all the evidence that he is sovereignly in control. And here in this chapter we see the glorious Christ, as we pointed out last Lord's Day, coming. There's a silence in heaven. Verse 1 of chapter 8, when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Now, there are all kinds of interpretations as to the significance of this silence and why it might be. But the psalmist tells us that all the nations are to be silent before God. And here, heaven has every reason to be silent because of what is about to happen in the visions of John. I saw verse 2, he says, the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets, and it seems they take these trumpets in silence. They understand perfectly the significance of them, and they prepare themselves to sound 
the trumpets. But they, while they prepare themselves, something else is happening. Another angel, and we pointed out this can only be the glorious Christ himself. It's as though in the vision of John you can depict it. He's rising from his throne and he's approaching the altar. And there is silence because of his approach to that altar. They know. They have desired to look into these things, Peter tells us. And they have looked into the mystery of his death, his atoning death, upon the altar that was typified in the Old Testament. Here we see, and we're not going to go back over it, the prayers of the saints arising in the presence of God from the throne and uh, the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Now we might think naturally, well, there's no need for any altar in order for prayers to ascend into God's presence. But the only reason they can possibly ascend and be accepted with God is because of what happened on the altar, because of Christ's atoning death. And it is the incense of his purity, his righteousness, his obedience, the perfection of his person and his work that makes those prayers acceptable. But then, what does he do now? We are told the angel took the censer. When the prayers have ascended and are very obviously accepted with God, and let's perhaps just remind ourselves of what these prayers are about and what they include, the prayer that we know is acceptable with God. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, we're all familiar with it. Uh, Matthew's gospel and the chapter 6 there where the Savior teaches us to pray. And what does he tell us? We are to pray. And what then have we confidence in that God accepts as true prayer? Verse 10 of Matthew 6, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Do we imagine that these prayers were somehow or other contrary to this or different to this, that their petitions were not like this? Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And you see these sentiments expressed by the church, by those creatures around the throne in the book of the Revelation. But we can be assured that the prayers that ascend through Christ acceptable, this is what they're about. 
Thy kingdom come. They're praying for the advancement and the prosperity of Christ's kingdom. They want his will to be done in earth as it is in heaven. But also, they attribute all the power and all the glory and all the honor to him. The prayers are not centered on themselves, not praying for their prosperity, their advancement, their personal success. No, it is for the advancement of Christ's glory. And when you and I pray, we better be sure that whatever we're asking for, it's not centered in self, but seeking the advancement of his glory. But now what does Christ do? Here the great high priest within the veil, he takes the censer. And we're told he filled it with fire from off the altar. That altar was an altar upon which atonement was made. An altar that speaks of mercy, that speaks of grace. An altar that God was delighted with. Jesus himself could say, Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life. But what does he do now? He takes the censer and he fills it with fire from that altar. And now what does he do? He pours that fire out upon the earth. He filled it with fire. And there were voices. He cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound, heralding or announcing fearful judgments that were to fall upon men and become their terrible experience. Now, before considering what happens, and remember we're talking about symbols, symbolic language, uh, not literal, uh, although uh, the symbols convey sometimes actions or uh, testify to actions that produce literal effects. But as you've heard me say, in order to understand correctly the New Testament, we need to begin with the Old Testament and make sure we understand it. I believe there are many people who pay little attention to the Old Testament scriptures and pay very little attention, careful attention, to what often they actually state, what God inspired the prophets to write in order and to write plainly as we've seen in the past that we might understand them. 
If we do not understand what the prophets were talking about, well, we certainly will not understand the New Testament. And one thing is most certain, we will not understand the book of the Revelation. We cannot, without understanding at least something of what the prophetic message was in the Old Testament. We must understand the relationship between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church, between national Israel and the universal church. If we get that confused, we are in a a theological and a scriptural maze. And so I want to, you've heard me referring to the churches in Asia, the seven churches being the daughters of Zion or the daughters of Jerusalem. Now you will find throughout both the major and the minor prophets various references to the daughter of Zion, or the daughter of Jerusalem, or even the daughters in plural. Do we even stop to think, what does this really mean? Who are these daughters? What daughter are we talking about? What are the prophets talking about? Or do we just assume, well, that doesn't really matter. That's in the Old Testament. We we don't need to worry about that because we're not even bothered about Jerusalem or Zion anymore anyway. Let's consider, first of all, what we read in the Minor Prophets, in the prophecy of Zephaniah. There we find in the chapter 3 of that little prophecy these words in verse 14. Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 14, sing... O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. What does that mean? What is God referring to? Here it's clear the emphasis is upon the daughter, the joy and the rejoicing of the daughter, the daughter of Zion, or the daughter of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the mother, and there is a daughter that is brought forth by the mother and is told by God, to rejoice. Now, if you look again with me at Zechariah and the second chapter, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10, again we read similar words, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be 
my people, many nations, not one nation. That's how they understood it in the days of Moses and the days of David and Solomon. There's one nation that has been chosen by God as a peculiar people, and God says, I am your God, you are my people. Now he's saying, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Any nation can be identified as being my people and I will be the God of that nation. I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. Again, in the same prophecy of Zechariah, in the chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt of the, the foal of an ass. Now it's very obvious that here God, it isn't an accidental statement, it isn't something that came into the prophecies without thought, it is the inspired word of God that the prophets were directed to write about the daughter. The daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem. Now we have to keep that in mind then when we turn to the prophecy of Isaiah and there chapter 54 enlightens us as to the, uh, as it were, the birth or the uh, coming forth of this daughter, Isaiah chapter 54, Sing, O barren, who have we been hearing God telling to sing? Sing and rejoice, Zion, sing and rejoice, Jerusalem. But sing and rejoice, Daughter of Zion, sing and rejoice. Daughter of Jerusalem, there's to be this joy, as it were, of mother and daughter. Why does the mother rejoice? Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not Travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand, and in the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, 
and make the desolate cities to be inhabited, and so on. Verse 5, thy maker is thy husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. The God of the whole earth is your husband. And therefore, there will be born this daughter of Zion. And that daughter shall be spiritually of the nations of the whole earth over which I am the governor. Now it is important to keep this in mind because when we go to the New Testament, we have none less than Paul. You go with me to the epistle that he writes to the Galatians. He leaves us with no doubt whatever as to the meaning and the significance of what these prophets were writing. Galatians and the chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. We might read back a little verse 22 of Galatians 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For there, these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is agar. For this agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which is nigh, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, the spiritual Jerusalem, in contrast to the present material geographical Jerusalem. He's contrasting these two Jerusalems, the material and the spiritual Jerusalem. What does he say? But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. The mother of us all. Jerusalem, rejoice. Daughter of Jerusalem, rejoice. Why? Because of what Paul writes here. He understood. He explains it, for it is written. Why did he say this? Did this just come into his head? Well, this is how I interpret it. This is how I personally understand it. And after all, I'm an apostle, so you ought to agree with me. He doesn't. He says, for it is written. What's written? Exactly what we read. Rejoice thy barren that bearest not from Isaiah 54. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she that hath an husband, 
and so on. Verse 29, but as he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. What's Paul talking about? The very children that we looked at in the past that Peter talked about, uh, the peculiar people, the holy nation, uh, consisting the temple of God of the living stones built upon the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now here it is as clear as crystal who the daughter is. It's the church of the Gentiles. It is the church that has been born out of Judaism, the church of the Gentiles that is born, as it were, from Jerusalem. Now, keeping that in mind, Jesus, when he was in this world, he said he came, as we noted, to fulfill the law and the prophets. So he should be able to tell us how he fulfills the law and the prophets, what he's doing to bring about the fulfillment. In the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, remember that chapter where he was speaking to the two in the way to Emmaus, and he opened up the scriptures to them. He didn't say, well, I'm Jesus, I'm the Word made flesh, and I'm able to tell you things beyond what is written. He simply opened the scriptures. The light they needed was there. The understanding they required was there in the scriptures of the Old Testament. In the gospel according to Luke uh, chapter 24, uh, we uh, have there uh, Jesus. uh, I've got the wrong text, I think. Uh, Anyway, what... I intended to draw your attention to was the Savior telling the, I should have said 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That was in the purpose of God. Jerusalem is going to bring forth a daughter. Now, how will it happen? It's to be a spiritual birth. She will rejoice, and the daughter will rejoice together, because that's what the prophet said would happen. And Jesus said he came to fulfill the prophets. Here he's telling these uh, disciples of his, the day is coming when repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. But where does it begin? Where does this preaching process begin in Jerusalem? Now then, let's see the importance of Jerusalem and how the Old Testament prophecies are so 
perfectly fulfilled. Many people are running around today and they're saying, Ah, well, the day is coming when the word of the Lord, the word of the gospel, is going to go out from Jerusalem. And there's going to be a great millennial reviving and then the Jews will be brought in and there's going to be a great success somewhere in the distant future. Jesus makes it clear that the work that he came to do and the fulfillment of the scripture would begin when the gospel was actually going out from Jerusalem. That's how it's going to begin, he says. It'll go to all the nations, but it will begin at Jerusalem. And if you uh, look with me at uh, what is written in the Acts of the Apostles, which is the continued ministry of the Savior, Let's see and remember what we looked at last week. Jesus made a promise. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm going to build it. So let's see how he begins to build it in the Acts of the Apostles. Remember what he's told his disciples and we looked at there the foundation. Church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And as I mentioned, Matthew, that's the first reference that we have in the New Testament to the church. The disciples, this was new to them. I'm going to build my church. Is this something new, something entirely different? We noted the transfer of the laws and the principles from the Old Testament law into the proceedings in the early church. But here in Acts chapter 2, what do we read? Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and we're told in verse 41 of Acts 2, they that uh, gladly received his word were baptized in the same day. There were added unto them 3,000 souls added to the round 120 people uh, mentioned in chapter 1. Now then look at what it says at the end of chapter 2. These that were added unto the disciples continued daily with one accord in the temple. And so on, verse 47. Praising God. Praising God. Here's all these additional believers. And they've come to Jerusalem. This adding is taking place where? In Jerusalem. 
And what are we seeing them doing? Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's he doing? And the Lord added to the church. There he's building it. There's the fulfillment of what he said he would do. I will build it. I will fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets and everything they said, I'm going to fulfill it. And here now, I'm building my church. And I'm adding to it, brick by brick, stone by stone. I'm building it. I'm adding to the church daily, such as should be seen. Where's it all happening? At Jerusalem. Now then, go through the Acts and watch the progress. And what do we find in chapter 8 as persecution begins to develop? Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting unto his death, as the death of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church. Where is it? The church which was at Jerusalem. You see how it all fits together? The Old Testament prophecies, the word as we've noticed in the past, the law and the word of God was to go out from Jerusalem. Jesus explains it. It'll be the gospel of grace and repentance and faith and it'll go to the nations from Jerusalem and I will build my church and I'll build it beginning at Jerusalem. Now, here's the church that he said he would build. It's at Jerusalem. Verse uh, 1, continuing, And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Who are the apostles? They are the foundation. The foundation stays in Jerusalem. But the believers are being scattered everywhere. Not the apostles. They are the foundation. And it is not an insignificant fact that they stayed in Jerusalem because Jesus said that's where the work begins. I lay the foundation in Jerusalem. I build my church beginning at Jerusalem. I build it on the foundation laid in Jerusalem. And you can see verse 4, Therefore uh, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word, exactly as the Savior said. Now, if you... Uh, Go with me to verse 14 of Acts 8. You will see these words. Now, when the apostles 
which were at Jerusalem. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Heard that Samaria had received the word of God. What did they do? They sent unto them Peter and John, apostles in Jerusalem. Now the gospel has reached Samaria, exactly as Jesus said it would. They were to preach the gospel in Judea, Jerusalem and Judea, and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Here it is reaching Samaria. Now, this hasn't happened before. And so, when they've heard in Jerusalem that in Samaria they've actually received the gospel, what do they do? They send Peter and John from Jerusalem go down to Samaria, or rather up, and check out what's happening. Discover if it's genuine. If this is really the same, uh, the same evidence is there as to spiritual life and attachment to God as is in Jerusalem. Verse 25 then of Acts 8. And they when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, what did they do? They returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the hub, the center of all this activity. It's from Jerusalem the gospel goes out. It's from Jerusalem approval is given of the orthodoxy of the truth that's being preached. It's all from Jerusalem. Now, if you go then with me over to chapter 15. Here now, we see a very important, they've reached a very important juncture in the history, the development of the church that Christ said he would build. What happens? They've run into trouble in the Gentile church. The gospel is spreading, but it's creating problems. Because these Gentiles have not been brought up with Judaism. They don't know about Moses and the law. They don't know about uh, the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood and the altars. They don't know anything of all the ceremonial law and all the feasts and at Jerusalem. They know, they're ignorant of all that. So a problem arises, verse 1 of chapter 15. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. My, that was going to really cause a lot of difficulty. So what happens? Verse 2, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders. We go back to the foundation. 
we go back to the apostles whom Jesus said would be guided into all truth by the Holy Spirit. He would not leave them comfortless, but he would come to them. Now here, where is he pleased that they stay in Jerusalem? The other saints are going all over the place because of persecution. Did they decide, well, in Antioch or Ephesus, have we run into any problems? We'll just have to sort it out ourselves. No, they went back to Jerusalem. Because the prophet said, it's from Jerusalem. The word of God would go forth. If you go back to the uh, prophecy of Isaiah, there are other uh, prophecies, but just for the sake of one, uh, Isaiah 2, verse 3. Many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You don't need a degree from Oxford to understand what that means. Everyone knew where Jerusalem is. And everyone knew what it meant. Well, out there among the nations, they don't know the law. Out there amongst the Gentiles, they don't know the Lord and the word of the Lord. But it will go out from Jerusalem and men will come to the day when they be saying, let's go up to Jerusalem in order to find out the mind of God and to discover the word of God. Why, why, why is there such a difficulty in bringing together what God has joined together in our own minds what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And God has joined it in his word. What were they saying? Well, if there's a problem, we need to know the mind of God. We need to know what the word of God is. How are we going to find out? We go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because God said the law and the word would go from Jerusalem. They believed the scriptures. These men believed, simply put their trust in God's word. They believed sincerely what God said, and they acted upon it. They went up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about the question. Verse 4. When they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church. Church is still at Jerusalem. And of the apostles and elders. The foundation is still solidly in Jerusalem. Now then, when this problem is brought to Jerusalem... What happens? 
a sentence goes out from Jerusalem. Verse 19 of Acts 15, Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them. Well, what could be clearer? The law is going out from Jerusalem. It's simple. It's clear. It's precise. It really, to me, is very sad that you get these characters going around with their prophetic ministries, becoming wealthy, because people are fascinated with the future. And so they're told, oh, there'll be a secret rapture, and then Christ will descend, and the mind of Allah's will be split in two, and Christ will take his throne in Jerusalem, and there'll be a great and wonderful working as he rules and reigns, his millennial kingdom will have arrived. God said to the prophets, as we noted last week, make it clear. Because I want people to read it and understand. And these apostles were reading it later, and it was clear to them what was happening. What do we read? Verse 22 of the same Acts 15, Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church at Jerusalem to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barnabas, and so on. Verse 23, they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders, the foundation members, the foundation in Jerusalem, from it we send you letters. What are the letters about? We send greeting, but then verse 24, for as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we give no such commandment. Whatever they brought to you didn't come with apostolic authority. It's erroneous. It's not the word of the Lord going out from Jerusalem. And then you see, for the sake of time, in chapter 16, what happens, Paul and Silas, they go throughout the Gentile congregations, and this is what we're told, verse 4 of, verse 3, just to get the connection, Paul takes... uh, Timotheus with them and they go forth uh, to the congregations where Paul has ministered. Earlier, verse 4, as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep 
that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. Could Luke have made it any clearer? Are these apostles as the early church all mixed up? Do they really need to wait until the 19th or 20th century when these dispensationists will come along and these secret rapturists will appear to put them right? They understood perfectly what the apostle, what the prophets were saying. And here it is, they are delivering throughout the churches, the Gentile churches throughout the nations, the decrees for to keep the laws, which were ordained of the apostles and elders, which were at Jerusalem, and so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, there are many other portions we could go to, but I'm assuming that what we've said is sufficient to make the picture clear. These promises are being fulfilled. Jerusalem is the mother. The apostles are the foundation. But God had said to her that was barren, I am your husband. And I am the God of the whole earth. So I am going to bring forth children from among the nations. And out of Jerusalem will go forth the saving, regenerating power of the gospel that will bring forth these children. And when, therefore, we come to the book of the Revelation and we have Seven churches mentioned. There's no mention of Jerusalem. They are the seven churches in Asia. And they are the daughter or the daughters of Jerusalem because it was from Jerusalem and from the apostles. And when the gospel was being preached and Gentiles were being converted, what did they do? They sent apostles from Jerusalem, make sure they are orthodox. Make sure there is agreement. Make sure that we are one. One in doctrine. One in, uh, in belief. One in faith. One in practice. The decrees came from Jerusalem. The law was sent out through all the churches. Now, when we come to Revelation, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the church that Jesus said he would build. We're not dealing with national Israel, no matter what anyone says. We are dealing with Christ's church. John is telling us what Christ was going to do once he was enthroned. And it is from that throne that he rises. And 
takes this censer and pours fire out upon the earth. In the gospel according to Luke, Luke actually records this in the chapter 12. Jesus said that he came to send fire, verse 49 of Luke 12. I am come to send fire on the earth. What will I if it be already kindled? I have come to send fire upon the earth. Now that's his own statement. What does he mean? You go back to the Old Testament and you see many references to fire and heal, storms and so on, and it is always associated with judgment. I have come, yes, to atone for sin. I have come to save sinners, but I have come to send fire upon the earth. Little wonder there is silence when they see the glorious Redeemer going to the altar with that censer and it is now empty because the prayers of the saints have been rising to him be the glory and the honor forever. They desire his kingdom and they desire to see his glory in that kingdom. Now we read earlier of Solomon and his great kingdom and his throne. Solomon is the son of David. He takes the throne of David as the man of peace, the king of peace. David was the man of war, and he said to Solomon, I'm forbidden to build the great house of the Lord, but I have gathered the material for you to do it. And uh, so Solomon was to do it. Now, look at what the queen of Sheba had to say when she came to see the glory of Solomon. Remember what Jesus said, speaking of the flowers of the field, the lily. What does he say? Even Solomon in all his glory. He acknowledges the outstanding, unique glory of Solomon. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Later on, what does he say? Speaking of the Queen of Sheba going to visit Solomon because of the wisdom that she became aware he possessed, what does Jesus say? And a greater than Solomon is here. I am even greater than Solomon. So if we think of even Solomon in glory was not arrayed like one of these but I am greater than Solomon. I have even greater glory. So that's why we read in the second book of Chronicles there what the Queen of Sheba 
uh, how she responded when she came and saw this glory. Now, I want you to note something. We're here in the types when we're with Solomon here. One of the things that she remarked, and I hope everyone will pay attention and not just be dismissive. Verse 3 of Second Chronicles 9. Solomon told her, or rather, verse 3, when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he built. Now, what does she see? And the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and what? And their apparel. And their apparel. His cupbearers also. And their apparel. Whoever said apparel is of no significance. That is a theory that comes from hell. And the devil has infiltrated the professing church with that heresy. Because that's what it is. What impresses, what made this impression upon the Queen of Sheba? Was it merely their manners? The way they attended? Their sitting at the table? Their courtesy, their apparel. She took note of that. That made an impression. I make no mistake about it. Every one of us, in the way we apparel ourselves, we are making a statement. And it is making an impression upon those who see it, just as much as it did here with the Queen of Sheba. But there's something else. There, apparel, verse 4, and his ascent by which he went up to the house of the Lord. Now she had her own temples, no doubt. Her own style of worship, whatever. But when she saw how Solomon and his servants and his people went up to the house of God. She had not witnessed anything like this before. The way they went to God's house made an impression upon her. She obviously was impressed with the reverence and the awe with which they went. These why do you think they're here? Did they just somehow or other arrive in here as an accident? It was just something that the author of Chronicles just decided that it would be nice just to put it in there. 
This is the divinely inspired word of God. And God has it there for our information. Jesus, he remembered this. And he speaks of the Queen of Sheba going to see the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 8 of this chapter 9, and with this we must close. What did she say to Solomon? Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on his throne to be king for the Lord thy God, because thy God loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore, made he thee king over them to do what? To do judgment and justice. Psalm 89 tells us that justice and judgment are at the throne of God and in the throne of God. They are before his throne. Now the time is gone, but why will he empty out fire from the censer to the earth? Because like Solomon, judgment and justice is what here the Queen of Sheba recognized. Mark his throne. And we must never forget when the white horse was riding forth, the red horse, the black horse, the peel horse were also riding forward. And that altar that brought atonement sends judgment out upon those who reject the gospel and reject Christ and trample his blood under their feet. And we shall come to see the seriousness of that. It is the glorious Christ who's emptying out judgments upon godless men and godless women in the earth. And it will get more serious as we progress through the book. But I trust the one thing I emphasize is this. Until we are sure, we know where we're going from the Old Testament into the New Testament, then until we know that, we're not going to understand the book of the Revelation. But may God help us to understand it. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, write thy truth upon our hearts, enable us to understand it, enable us to rejoice as the daughter of Zion, to rejoice that the gospel has reached us, that the gospel has prevailed throughout the earth to the glory of the great Redeemer. Bless thy truth, accept us, pardon us, for Christ's sake. Amen.